So it started out with Doc Fleckinger, like you, just like you said, an MD, uh, a plane went down, a C-46 went down in Burma and there were survivors on the ground. Like it wasn't hostile, but it also wasn't permissive environment. And so this doc and two survival instructors, because that's really what they needed, um, jumped in and, you know, moved these people over land and took care of them and, you know, got their injuries, stabilized them and then helped them move over land with their survival skills. And so it's this perfect mesh. And then it just grew out from there. And you have what today is like the modern PJ. I'm your host, Nick Carson. I've worked as a professional firefighter, paramedic, and currently as a flight medic in New England. Welcome to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. I have Paul Berendrecht with me today, all the way from Alaska. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me, Nick. Of course. Yeah, I'm really, really excited to have you on the show. I'm so interested in the Air Force pararescue. Man, it's like one of the coolest jobs on earth. We had the opportunity to listen to a talk from both you and then Dr. Rush from um, the New York PJ unit uh, down in New Orleans. And I just couldn't get enough of it. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And I'm glad we could figure out the technology all the way from Vermont connected into Alaska, because I think the listeners are going to get a kick out of it. Yeah, it's amazing what we can do nowadays. I know, it's pretty awesome. So um, just real quick, just I'm super curious, is it that time of year where it's dark like most of the time in Alaska or is it like kind of split or which direction are you going? It is, yeah, so we're kind of in the shoulder season. It is getting really dark because the leaves are falling off the trees. There's not quite enough snow sticking on the ground, so we're not getting that reflective light. Uh, we did just have some snow two days ago that stuck around for about 12 hours before it melted, but it's it's getting pretty dark for a pretty long time. Oh, man. Yeah, I, my short little anecdote about that is my wife and I went to um, Iceland for our honeymoon, and we kind of failed to factor in how high up it is <laughs> on the earth. And so the first night we were there, we slept in and we woke up and we're like, man, I feel like we slept for like... 18 hours and we looked at our phones and it was like you know 10 11 o'clock in the morning and it was pitch black outside and we're like oh my like yep. did we not change our phones i thought iphone like change it and so for the rest of the trip we finally figured it out that we only had four hours of daylight because we went in january and so we did a oh, lot gosh. yeah we did a lot of driving uh at night but the cool thing was we actually went there to try to see the northern lights so we just had more time to check it out which was cool but just uh something we overlooked when we were planning our trip yeah yeah, absolutely. It's hibernation season. This is when you start, you know, wearing heavy wool and eating soups and stews and sleeping. Oh, for sure. hundred <laughs> percent. Well, I really appreciate you being here. And um, if you don't mind, um, you are actually the first PJ we've been able to talk to on the show. And I was hoping that you might be able to talk a little bit about um, how you got interested in the Air Force and then kind of what your journey's been and just a little bit of an overview about like what the PJs do and kind of kind of how they serve uh, both civilians and uh, military elements in the world. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, so I joined the Air Force at 17 years old. I had to get my parents' permission. Yeah. Um, they were happy to sign that paperwork. I wouldn't say I was the uh, the best student. You know, I um, the teachers always said he's so smart he could be so much better if he just applied himself. Oh, and yeah. I didn't really take their <laughs> I didn't really take their advice so much, and so um, 
So I joined the military because uh, the recruiters were always calling because I used to take the ASVAB test to get out of class yep. um, and then and then finish it early and then head out. So I went in the Air Force. I actually didn't know anything about pararescue when I went in. I went in in 1992. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't on the, the front headlines or anything at the time. And on the fourth day, they give you these briefings about you know, cool jobs that you might not have heard of. And I watched a, a slideshow, like with a literal slide deck um, of, of, you know, with, with slides that showed, you know, PJs doing really cool stuff. And I thought, man, that looks fantastic. So I'd like to try that out. And, and you know, they said, okay, sounds good. You know, nobody ever makes it, but go for it. <laughs> and you take this initial initial test. It's like run and, or it starts with a swim and then a run. And then, um, calisthenics and that's just to get into to try selection yeah um funny side note we just had a big barrel of shorts that you would put on for the swim the elastic didn't really work so well so i ended up having to about the second push off the wall and my shorts i just pulled them off and slammed the rest of the test without swim shorts on and uh just kind of set the tone for my career just getting it done and and making (laughs) things happen that's probably what so, they wanted. You probably got it, your name written down right when you did that. They're like, that guy right there. Yeah. He doesn't care about shorts. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, they're like, what are you even doing, dude? I'm like, you said this, you, you said to do the test, Sergeant. Like, that's, that's right. it. That's what I did. <laughs> um, so ended up, you know, we started with a class of like 120 something and ended up with eight guys, uh, the selection course. And that's just to like start the training. Yeah. Um, so then you go through a uh, two-year pipeline where you're going to all the DOD's best schools. You're going to scuba school, parachuting, uh, mili- you know, basic airborne, military free fall school, survival school, water survival school, dunker training. Um, and then you end up at Pararescue University and you go through uh, Pararescue School, which is medicine, which you end up getting now paramedic. Uh, national registry paramedic license. Um, and then you go through climbing and then you go through small unit tactics and put it all together and graduate. And then you go to your first unit. My first unit was Cocoa Beach, Florida, and was there for a couple of years, ended up getting a jump mission where you parachute out. I parachuted out to about two, 300 miles south of Bermuda from Cocoa Beach, Florida for a heart attack victim, um, which was really fun. That was a couple months after I had shown up. And so it was like, all right, this is what pararescue is all about. Yeah. Right. Jumping in the middle of the ocean yeah. and, you know, saving people and motoring into Bermuda. Uh, so I left there, went up to Iceland for a couple of years or for a year and a half. So I'm very familiar with what you're talking oh, about. Nice, I have yeah. the same experience. That's awesome. I love that place. Oh, yeah. So people are wonderful. The place is gorgeous. Um, Oh, it's best, you know, and yeah, long days, long nights, all points in between Mm -hmm. great missions out of there as well. North Atlantic, uh, rescues off of ships and, you know, different things, uh, then left there, went to Okinawa, Japan and, um, and then finally ended my career. I, I moved up to Alaska, joined the Alaska Air National Guard and then finished out my career so I, I ended up doing 25 years as a as a pararescue man and retired uh, about six uh, six years ago. Yep, six and a half years ago, almost seven years in January of 2017. Um, and so, for those that don't know, pararescue is uh, the DoD, the Department of Defense's only 
rescue force, the dedicated rescue force. You know, there are a lot of agencies out there that do search and rescue as like a collateral job and they do it, they do it very well. Um, but you know, pararescue is the DOD's like only dedicated force. That is the, that is what they train for is doing search and rescue and combat and civilian environments. Um, and you know, it's a small, it's a small contingent of people out there. So it's a pretty tight knit community. If you know one, then you drop a name of another PJ that you might have heard of or might know or know of. And chances are, you know, there are one to two degrees of separation between everybody. So yeah, it's pretty sure. fun. You know, I just was at a pararescue reunion a couple of weeks ago, actually right before the New Orleans uh, trauma expo and, you know, ran into a bunch of buddies that I hadn't seen in like 20 something years. And it was fantastic. Um, so you know, pararescue in combat, uh, will go into, you know, combat areas, you know, under fire and the, the doctrine of, of pararescue is, you know, you, you pick up air force pilots behind enemy lines. Like that's yeah. kind of your traditional model of what pararescue is. Yep. Pararescue being pararescue, you know, they, they're always about the mission. So they're always like looking to, get on anything going out of town and, and forward deploying personal recovery and getting out in the battle space and, you know, being attached to other um, special operations teams that are out there who can use like medical or technical assistance yeah. and as a, as a force multiplier. Yeah. So, so that's the combat environment. And then you come back home and Alaska is unique because we're the busiest uh, rescue team in the DOD where um, you average, you know, a mission a week, basically you, there's, you know, plus or minus 50 missions, plus or minus a couple, um, 50 missions a year. And that's anything from pulling climbers off of Denali to plane crashes, to open ocean rescues outside of the coast guards sphere of influence. Um, and so middle of the ocean, all the way up to North pole and all points in between. So you know, pretty unique stuff since Alaska is one fifth the size of the continental United States. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a big operating area. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I thought it was yeah. pretty cool. I remember like when I was obviously coming up through grade school and high school and they were doing the heaviest recruiting in my direction, it was kind of right in the middle of the Middle East conflict. And so there were some pretty, pretty high speed slogans that were going around for recruitment. I remember one that always stuck in my head. My, I think my first interaction with the PJs was like something along the line, someone put up like, you know, because even, you know, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers and Green Berets need 911, you know, someone's got to come <laughs> help them out and, and be available. And, you know, I just think it's so cool that you have this dual mission of this military, you know, resource that goes out and performs these rescues and kind of the tradition of where that came from, but also, you know, these civilian rescues where if you have a climber on Denali, you know, and you have a pararescue unit up there, that may be the resource that can get in there with that, you know, those DOD equipment and training and, and get that person out. It's pretty cool that you can kind of do both sides. I don't know many military units outside of like guard units that are traditionally doing that. It's pretty cool to see that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's great. It's, it's the fun thing. I mean, we're, you know, we're just as busy or, you know, the PJs are just as busy at home as they are deployed. You know, there's always something going on and there's, there's, you know, to be able to utilize DOD resources to help the civilians out, you know, it's, it's giving back to the community. Um, and pararescue is, is pretty well known up in Alaska because of that, because, you know, you've got these 
fantastic rescues that people are doing and you know it's directly in the news and and those are your neighbors and that's that's the really cool thing about being it's the Alaska Air National Guard and so you know guys or people's families are enrolled in the schools and then going out on missions and picking up people and you know they're Alaska is a very big small community so oh yeah for sure chances are you know the aviation community is huge up here but it's all very tight knit and and so you, if you say that you are a pararescue and a PJ up in Alaska, you know, people are like, Oh my gosh, I had a friend get picked up by you guys. And you know, it's just, it's, it's cool. It's yeah. like a, it's a, you know, you're just woven into the fabric of the community, which is really, really fun and, and fulfilling. Yeah. I was, I was doing some research for this episode before um, we got on. And from my understanding, it, it sounds like kind of where the PJ um, job came from is uh, in World War II in Southeast Asia when the pilots were going down behind enemy lines. They basically like took a couple. They realized that people were injured and trapped and couldn't get out, and they basically took some physicians and they're like, "Hey, you're pretty good at medical. Do you want to learn how to jump out of a plane with a parachute?" And they started doing that, and they're like, "Man, we can actually like get medical resources to these people and help them out." And then it kind of like evolved from there and kind of they started you know taking really high quality you know smart individuals and then starting to give them this medical background and kind of blending those two sides of problem solving whatever that may be whether it's medical or rock climbing or scuba diving and it's pretty cool to kind of see that like progress and now they're adding in helicopters and all the resources that you guys have now the you know zodiac boats and helicopters and planes and atvs and um you know all the equipment that you can bring and and try to affect those rescues it's pretty cool to see all that develop over the last you know 70 years or so oh my gosh it's incredible yeah so it started out with doc fleckinger like you just like you said an md uh a plane went down a c-46 went down in burma and there were survivors on the ground like it wasn't hostile but it also wasn't permissive environment and so this doc and two survival instructors because that's really what they needed um, jumped in and, you know, moved these people over land and took care of them and, you know, got their injuries stabilized them and then helped them move over land with their survival skills. And so it's this perfect mesh. And then it just grew out from there. And you have what today is like the modern PJ, which this very well-trained, capable individual who's, who can pretty much figure out, you know, what's going on and, and the pararescue as well. And those, those guys were amazing at what they were doing and and the the tide just keeps rising and people are leaving it better than they found it. Um, and you have what you have today, which is this, you know, person who can go on planes, trains, automobiles, uh, and helicopters and, and get to somebody or on foot and get to somebody and get them out of there, out of a sticky situation and just problem solve, you know, big, big mega problem solvers with a lot of unique skills. Yeah, and I, I did like a decade in the fire service and we always had this saying called like mission creep, which is basically like back in like the 80s and the 90s, really what you needed to be good at is like fires and car accidents. That's pretty much what you needed to be like squared away to take care of. And th those guys were awesome at that. And nowadays, like the general municipal firefighter is doing, you know, paramedicine, they're doing ice rescue, swift water, they're doing high angle rope yeah. rescue, they're doing trench rescue, they're doing um, confined space, they're doing, you know, everything from social work to mental health counseling to addiction resources. And it's like this, you know, there's an old uh, quote that one of the, the Chicago fire chiefs said is when they when they dial 9-1, they're not 
looking for two brain dead firefighters in a pickup truck. They want, you know, decathlon brain surgeon champions there to solve all their problems. And it's kind of like what you're talking about, <laughs> you know, they, yeah, that's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's pretty cool to like see that, you know, these the diversification of skill set. And it's like, not only do you have to be smart, but you have to be the fittest. And not only do you have to be smart and fit, you have to be good on your feet and you have to work well as a team and you have to be able to yeah. keep calm. And like, it's all these little things. And it kind of speaks a little bit to why maybe, you know, you see hundreds of people going to selection and only a handful coming out is because you, you really have to be an ace in all categories. You can't just be, you know, an amazing medical provider who, you know, gets distracted by shiny objects. You got to be able to do it all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty fun that way. You know, that we, we'd say that we're the jack of all trades and, um, you know, master of none. And, and I think that's kind of selling us short because you have guys that are really good at a lot of good things and, you know, nobody's the tops in the field. Like they're professionals that specialize in rock climbing. They're professionals that parachute and, and they're awesome at that. And, you know, we try to hit really good at a lot of things. And so I think that's, there's a sweet spot in there um, without having it be a detriment to your other skills. Oh, for sure. And, and if anybody's interested, I really encourage you to just go online and just search some mission briefs from the Air Force pararescue units, because a lot of them are de declassified or they're civilian missions. So you can read about exactly what happened. There's a really um, good one that, uh, you know, your, uh, the medical director, Dr. Rush was presenting over in New Orleans about that uh, Tamar rescue mission that, you know, 1200 miles off the coast oh. of New, in New York. And, you know, that they jumped in and, you know, it, when you read that brief, it's such a testament to what the PJs can do because every single paragraph you read, you're like, oh my goodness, what happened? They did what? And then you read another paragraph, you're like, no, it didn't. That right. didn't. And it's like thing after thing after thing. And, you know, you hear these interviews and talking with you and Dr. Rush and other PJs, it's kind of like, you know, these situations throw problems at them and they're like, yeah, is that all? Anything else? All right, cool. We'll take care right. of it. Like, right. you know, like there's all these things of like, you know, oh, the lights go out on the jump and it's like, yeah, it was not great, but like, we know how to do that. We train with that. It's all good. Like, and it's like, they've seen it before they're prepared for it and they kind of just move through the process. And, you know, I always hear this thing with, um, you know, sometimes we work with doctors in hospital and talk about like, you know, optimal conditions, optimizing your resources. And it's like, in the pararescue world, like nothing's ever optimal, like nothing works, nothing is going to happen, you know, you're going to have to just think on your feet and make, you know, get it done. And I think that's such a cool process. Right, right. And being comfortable with that, right? Like you have to be uncomfortable, like, oh, we should have this. Well, you're right. Like in an ideal world, we would have that or maybe we should have that, but we don't right now. And so what you have is what you have. And um, ideally, you've got, you know, the knowledge in your pack, which is really light in your pack. And, you know, you might not have seen this exact situation. I often like to say that there's no, no page in a book that any mission fits on. Like there, you know, every mission is unique in weather, personnel, capabilities, equipment, airframes, whatever, um, injury. And so to, to try and say, this is how we have to do something every time, uh, you've got a little freedom of movement, you know, within safety margins and all of that stuff. Like nobody's out there doing cowboy ops because, you know, you have to save cowboy ops for when you absolutely need them, not as a working standard. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's it's really nice to be able to freeform and flow that way. And I think you see people drawn to that because it is it isn't as rigid an, an event. It is like okay. 
I've not seen this thing exactly, but I've seen this thing adjacent. And I think that we can kind of do this. What do you think? Yep, I think that. What about this? And and you sort of triangulate the solution as opposed to maybe the direct path that you might read in a book somewhere. Yeah. Um, and that's that's just, I mean, that was, for me, that was the funnest thing was coming up on a situation and, and taking a pause and, you know, that tactical pause and saying, all right how are we going to crack this nut? Because we just got told something back at base and we kind of prepared for that, but this is completely different, you know, 500 miles away with zero ability to go back to base to grab <laughs> the screwdriver, you know, yeah, for right. example, whatever. Yeah. I um, think it's, I think it's so cool. You know, like there's all these stories of, you know, they're using a snow machine and the snow machine breaks and they're like, Oh, well, yeah. So then we just carried him out. Cause you know, that's why we run all the time. And so we're ready for that, but it wasn't big deals. The snow sucked, but yeah, we were fine. It was all good. Like just being right. prepared to do what you need to do and knowing that your body, your mind, your equipment, your resources, your planning, your training, your like teamwork, it's all there to solve problems. And it's like 15 different ways to solve a problem. Not one protocol of what you're going to do. You're just like moving on to the next option. And that's a comfortable process to be able to do it multiple ways, which I think is so cool. Yeah. And you hit on the big thing, which is the teamwork, you know, you're working with this team and you're like, Hey man, I don't know. Like, what do you think about this? And you know, this is, these are my ideas and it's a, it's this cooperative element that, you know, there is a rank structure, but in the end it's this collaborative effort of, well, what do you think? What do you think is there's the scale of good, better, best. And you know, where, (laughs) where is this? And this isn't the best, but we don't have an option at the best. So let's make it good or better than we have it right now. Yeah, for um, sure. I think one of the interesting things that I heard you talking about when you were going over some of the case reviews down in New Orleans was this idea that in the specific element of Alaska, and I'm sure in a lot of other places too, like Iceland, sometimes, you know, 85% of the mission is the actual movement to the site. And then the movement back towards some sort of civilization, it's the actual care on the ground and loading them into the helicopter and doing those pieces of it isn't really that challenging. But like you brought up some really good points about, you know, maybe you need to do a helicopter evacuation, but the place you're going to be doing the helicopter evacuation is a thousand miles from where you are. So you have to load that, you know, HH-60 into the back of a C-17, fly it 500 miles and then do in-field, you know, in-flight fueling just to get there. And those concepts are things I think think people don't always think about is like, you know, that situation um, on the Tamar that uh, Dr. Rush was talking about, it was so far into the Atlantic Ocean that literally the Portugal rescue teams had to pick up the PJs with the patients. Like, I didn't even know that. That's insane that that's how far, you know, these parachutes are going and taking care of these patients. And, you know, same thing in Alaska. I mean, one fifth the continental United States, like getting to someone might be a challenge in the first place. Right. Yeah, I mean, that Tamar mission was fantastic. And it highlighted, you know, I think what it highlighted was, was here it is, rah, 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 like America, like that, the yeah. capabilities of the United States of America, like where else can you signal for help? And there is a C-130, like that takes off with all the crew, the flight crew, all the maintenance people to take care of that stuff, fly out there, jump in the middle of the night, transload to the Azores, transload to boats in the Azores, yeah. get on. And then the Portuguese rescue team comes and picks them up. And, you know, and PS, like all the medical treatment that they're doing, I mean, they're doing escharotomies and they're doing rapid sequence innovations yeah, and all, and of, all the, kinds of stuff. The, and Christ and like the medical 
uh, capabilities that they bring to bear. Like it was just, you know, it was and long-term care and nursing care. And, um, and then, you know, they had to use ropes to, to move the patient out of the, out of the, um, out of the hold and, and then transfer to a helicopter. So have some airmanship skills with the helicopters as well. And yeah, it was just, it was remarkable. Yeah, the article I read uh, so, was like so great. I mean, even just like the mentality of how those operators went in there. I mean, I guess like one of the components of it was it it didn't officially get sanctioned because it wasn't a military operation because it was so far away from the United States. And so they were like, they were like talking to the PJs and they're like, hey, so we can't really order you to go. And they're like, no, we're all packed. We're set. Let's go. And it's like, well, if they're all volunteering, right. let's lift. And they, they took off and they took care of it. And it wasn't even like a thought in their mind. They're like, what are you talking about? The gear's on the plane. Like we're going, you know, and they're yeah, this, this bullet has been fired. Yeah. And they're <laughs> like, they're in the air, you know, and, and there's a narrative piece in there that I read that gave me like goosebumps. One of the guys was like, you know, he's going, the light goes green and the ramps down. And he's like, he's like, Oh, are we really doing this? And the other guy's like, of course we're doing this and gives him a fist bump and just jumps out of the plane. He's like, well, I got to go now. Like that's, that's just the mentality. It's like, of course we're doing this. Of course this is what we're doing. And I think that's such a cool way to like prepare your outlook on what it is that you do. Yeah. I mean, she's, I think, I think every guy, every, every PJ to a T would say, Oh, Thursday night, we're going to go jump in the middle of, you know, the North Atlantic or the Atlantic. Like, why wouldn't we? Of course, like we're, we're itching to do that. Everybody's itching to do that. And, you know, champing at the bit, like, why, why would we be doing anything else but that? Like that is, that is, that is the ultimate in what everybody wants to be doing to include the crews, you know, and all the maintenance. And, you know, we're sort of the soft spot um, in the chain between the patient and the entire logistics tail that goes into it, you know, with the maintenance and the, you know, all the admin support and the flight crews and everything. And we're kind of the sexy person in the center of it all. But, but there is so much that, that reaches back that is being brought to bear to make that rescue happen. It's, it's so fun. It's so fun to be able to do. Yeah, it's just, I, I really encourage you, you know, obviously we'll talk a little bit about Alaska here, um, but, uh, you know, like I was reading that brief and, you know, there was a little piece about how, you know, the, the winds were so bad and the boats were going so crazy that the that the ladder snapped when they were trying to get off the boat onto the, the tugboat to transition onto shore. And just like yeah. one little sentence was like, yeah, so they just all jumped off onto the boat. It was fine. Like just that's such a PJ <laughs> thing to do. It's like, oh, the rope broke. Yeah, we'll just jump off, man. It's cool. Like, and I just think right. it's it's so fascinating, this mentality of like, of course we're going, yes, this is what we're doing. Like, this is what we expect to do. This is why we are here. And I think that's, that has a lot of parallels, you know, to first responders, you know, that listen to this show and fire EMS, military police is like, you know, you got to be able to anticipate that you're going to be called to do the most challenging part of your job. And that should be the expectation and expected, not some shocking, you know, scenario where you're sweating, trying to figure out what to do. Right. Totally. And I think, you know, it, it's capitalizing on the training situations that you do get like, okay, I'm not just checking a box. I'm not just, um, you know, filling a square. Like I'm, I'm training to a hundred percent of what I can get out of this training opportunity because my skills are going to degrade from there. You know, you can only get up to a a certain percent and then they start dropping off if you're not staying current in any of those things. And, and, you know, the ability to operate at that high level allows you to look left and right and see other options as well. And know you can fall back on, on your instincts and your training and the ability to be nimble 
of mind and figure out most situations. You know, you really kind of just hunker down and say, okay, I've not seen this one, but I've seen something like this. And so this isn't a shocker. So now I can kind of slow my heart rate down, relax, figure this out and know that I've got a team there. You know, like you're saying, this is first responders are out there doing all kinds of incredible things that they might not have seen in training, but they're figuring it out because that's what you have to do. There's a car in a ditch and a snowstorm and da 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 da. Like who trains for that? Well, you know, you don't, you can't pick a snowstorm to train in, but you work to be comfortable in the elements and you work to be comfortable on the side, you know, in a car that's kind of cattywampus and, and all of that. And then you just have good foundational skills that you fall back on. Like you're not making it up all the time. You can't make up enough of that stuff to operate in complex situations. You know, you have to have good fundamentals to be able to operate on the extremes of all the situations that you're going to work in. Oh, hundred percent. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the other pieces that I always try to, you know, emphasize to people entering this field is, you know, in a perfect situation, you're never going to be the most senior person on your first day. Like you should be coming in with people who have experienced different challenges that are then going to help you learn how to deal with challenges. And the cool thing about like the military and, uh, you know, police, fire, EMS, that kind of thing is, you have some level of rank structure and generally that kind of correlates with experience to a certain degree, just the nature of the beast. And so right. you know, I think of when I first came on the job, even if I didn't know what to do, I was with like a 20 year Lieutenant who's done a hundred of those and they teach me right. and then I do it. Right. And then, and then eventually I become more experienced and then I have a newer person and, you know, not to forget that that cyclical process of like learning, experiencing, doing it with someone and then doing it on your own is, is very natural. And you shouldn't feel this pressure coming into a tech technical high stakes job that you have to just be on your own with no support. Like that's not a good team. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I loved training younger people. Like I just loved it because it's just, you know, you make yourself obsolete, right? Like it's my duty to make sure that the people behind me are as well prepared for the mission when I'm gone, which I'm going to be, um, as they can be. And, you know, it's like, Hey, I want you to be doing this thing because I want you to be able to do it with the next group. And I'm here for you. Like I've got you, I've got your back, but why don't you go ahead and step into the breach and, and do this and get this stuff done? Because you've got a guardian angel, like two feet behind you that can come in and, and back clean up, but you don't need me. You've got this. I'm here to like talk you through it, work you through some of the finer points and, and, and then that way, when it's your turn to operate on your own, you've got this. You've already done it with a little bit of Overwatch. And, and I just, it's, I found that very rewarding and, you know, being able to pass on lessons and anecdotes and, um, and experience. And, you know, sometimes younger guys come in with more experience in certain areas and I would be the one listening like, okay, I've got some questions. What about this? And what have you seen about this? And yeah, um, right. I think having, having the idea that like, nobody's got it figured out perfectly. There's always somebody who's a little bit smarter in every single area. And so coming in with a little humility to say, all right, I've got questions, Lieutenant, you know, as, as you said, like, I've got questions. What about this? And, you know, good, a good trainer, good mentor can, can exponentially increase your skill sets. It's so great. It's like such a great relationship. 
Yeah. And I, and I always feel like the perfect system would be, you know, like somebody like you retiring after 25 plus years, like if you were to walk away and the guys that are coming in underneath you that you've trained with, if they know all your stories and all your failures and all your successes and all the tips and tricks you've learned and you can walk away and, you know, go watch the sunset and they can take that and build on it as a foundation, that's the perfect mentor relationship as if they they don't have to repeat anything that you made mistakes on if they can learn from you you know around the campfire rather than in the middle of the snowstorm on denali at seventeen thousand feet that would be ideal yeah absolutely and i you know i think i felt so confident in the you know in the guys behind me it's just like all right i'm out like you guys so have this and are going to make it even better because you guys are crushing it you know everything there's just really talented individuals out there that are, are doing great things. And, and, you know, it does not rise and fall on one single person, right? Like, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the single point of failure or success. Like that is, that's not, that's not possible in a, in a good, healthy organization. Yeah. You know, when I walk out, it shouldn't collapse because exactly. that's a problem. Yeah. And I think it's kind of that concept of like to play off the old adage, like you don't need to teach the young people where all the fish are. You just need to make sure they're really good fishermen. Like they'll figure those other things out. Like you just have to give them the skill set to find it out. Um, And I think that's like a core fundamental of most training programs, which are really good. I know when I was, uh, you know, reorient, you know, I was orienting in in the flight program, it was a new type of medicine for me. The speed was new and I was kind of getting my feet under me and kind of what you said about having that guardian angel. I used to call it like the Patrick Swayze from Go ghost, you know, when she's doing the pottery, I was like, (laughs) you know, we'd go to some tough call and my preceptor would be like, Hey man, how you doing? Like just Patrick Swayze me. I'll be good to go. Like, just keep an eye on me, you know, just make sure I know what I'm doing. And that was such a confidence booster. So that now when I see that stuff, it's like, yeah, no, I, I did that. I got that. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. Well, I want to um, wrap up here, but um, kind of as we close it out, I just want to um, I have this like concept that I always think about called like sunset memories, where like I think back to my career in the fire service and EMS and the things I did before moving to flight medicine. And I have like some very potent memories where like I kind of had these experiences and I were, was able to sit back and be like, man, that was like that was a good day. That was a good day at work. Like that was what I'm here to do. I feel really good about what I'm doing. Do you have any memories from your times, you know, in the PJs where, you know, you had an experience and you're like, that felt really good. Like that was, that was what I'm meant to do. And I did a good job and I felt prepared. Do you have anything you want to share on that? Oh gosh. I mean, I think, you know, I, I look so, I look back so fondly and more and more, the further I get away from it, I'm like, Holy cow, we pulled off a lot of amazing stuff. You know, I I was on every single continent in the world. Like I went down and did a headstand on the South Pole. Like that's, you that's know, nice. remarkable. And that was like, <laughs> that was pararescue that allowed me to do that. And, you know, jump in the middle of the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean on operational missions and be on the top of Denali and kind of, you know, be in in a combat zone and pulling people out and saving lives and and uh, and then hearing, you know, from guys that are still in like, hey man, I remember this you taught me and you know and so I don't know that I have one memory because it's like my whole career was that like if I had to do it all over again and stumble my way into it like I would absolutely do it exactly the way that I did it uh, because I. I had so much fun and I met amazing people. And, you know, what I say is I miss, I miss the clowns, not the circus. You know, I don't miss the military, but I miss, I miss all of the clowns that I worked with because 
the, you know, the caliber of humans that are out there doing all these crazy things, you know, when you're jumping out of a uh, military aircraft and, you know, or seeing, seeing helicopters dragged out in the middle of the ocean to go pluck somebody off a ship, like that's all just crazy stuff um, that stand out to me. Yeah, it's pretty cool Anyhow. to hear those those rescue stories. I mean, I just read one earlier today about a guy who was um, had a had a severe burn injury on a boat in the middle of the ocean, and he just kept thinking to himself, "I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die." And he was just preparing himself for that outcome. And this huge military plane just came out of nowhere and just started doing circles. And then all these, you know, boat comes out, five pararescue <laughs> men come out, and they're like, "What's up, man? It sounds like you got hurt." And he's like, "I could not imagine." He's like, "I thought I was dreaming. I had." no idea that that was yeah. even a thing and it's so cool that like the united states of america can provide services like that and take care of people you know wherever they get injured it's pretty cool yeah it's incredible like how out of context is that thinking about that like wait somebody just parachuted in a boat to rescue me a single person like there's you know you think about the 100 people that touched that rescue alone for that one person and that's what it's all about you know and pararescues motto is these things we do that others may live and like that's what it's all about like these things we do that others may live you know like i'm sure like i've certainly said that on really tough missions looking at my buddy who's like are we really doing this it's like that others may live man <laughs> yeah of course yeah no absolutely well paul i really appreciate you joining us here from the from the far reaches of alaska um it, if people are young people and they're really engaged and interested in pararescue, do you have any advice on kind of, you know, where they can start and where they might go looking for a progression in that type of career? Yeah, I would say, you know, get smart. Um, there's a lot of resources out there. It's, it's the best job in the world, in my opinion. And, you know, if you want it bad enough, you'll get it. Yeah. And yeah, that's it. Like it's, it's great. And the people make it. The job is fantastic, but the people make it. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Well, Paul, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm super jealous of your career. I, I love what I do. I just wish I had five lifetimes to do a bunch of other things too. And oh my gosh. It's, I know, it's right? so cool. So thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And uh, stay safe up there in Alaska. Watch out for the Grizzlies. Yeah, I will. Thank you, you too, Nick. And uh, stay safe out there too.